You can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederata.com. So I wanted to start tonight with a check on the COVID tracker because it is a constant companion these days. Um, It seems that at the moment, at least, levels of new infections are plateauing. Now, that doesn't mean they can't go back up again, uh, and it doesn't mean that we are out of the woods. That still means that there are around 100,000 new cases per day in the country. Now, luckily, deaths do seem to be uh, on the decrease and have decreased steadily for some time. So our daily average deaths is now down to around 244 average per day, Um, which, you know, I'd prefer both of those numbers to be a lot closer to zero, but at least they are not on a sharp uptick. So we are not going to talk about COVID tonight. Um, I could talk about some things, but I think that Uh, COVID fatigue is a real thing and I have been trying increasingly to not spend the first half of every show talking about COVID. Um, And so that doesn't mean that we're not going to talk about health. And it turns out that all of today's stories are actually focused on uh, health and disease and uh, treatments. So um, I didn't start out meaning for that to happen, but it just did. So we're going to talk about malaria first, and then uh, we'll talk about a really interesting new pacemaker, and then uh, we'll spend the rest of the evening talking about cancer, everybody's favorite subject, I know. So as I said, let's start with malaria. Um, And this is actually a good story. So um, a lot of COVID is very depressing and upsetting, and everything about COVID is pretty terrible. Everything about malaria itself is very bad, but uh, this might be a breakthrough that could lead to a new and exciting path to fighting uh, against this very deadly and pervasive disease. Now, as always, I want to preface this with the idea that as much as possible, the research that we talk about here on the show, or as much as with much of the research we talk about here on this show, this is in the very early stages, but the results are quite promising. And so as you are, I'm sure aware, we are constantly in an arms race against pathogens. We've talked, we actually talked fairly extensively about it last week, when we talked about antibiotic resistance. And so anti-malarial drugs are actually one of those places where the pathogens are also starting to win. And so a new approach has been spearheaded by a group of researchers at the University of Melbourne who have identified an anti-malarial compound called ML901, which inhibits the various plasmodia, 
which cause malaria, but does not affect mammalian cells. Um, and so malaria is actually caused by five different kinds of plasmodia. Um, the most um, common one is plasmodium um, falciparium. And so uh, that is the most common and is also the one that is uh, potentially the most deadly. But there are other versions of the uh, plasmodia that are able to infect and cause malaria. Co-lead author Professor Leanne Tilly from the university's Bio21 Institute notes that the compound actually turns the parasite against itself. ML901 works by an unusual reaction hijacking mechanism, Professor Tilly said. Imagine a stealth weapon that can be used to launch a self-destruct attack on your vehicle, slamming on the brakes and cutting the e engine. ML901 finds a particular chink in the machinery that the malaria parasite uses to, to generate the proteins needed to reproduce itself and stops it doing so. While there is much more work to be done to fine-tune what we've discovered, these results are really encouraging in the search for new antimalarials. And so the discovery was part of a collaboration with Takeda Pharmaceuticals, the Medicines for Malaria Venture, and labs across the world, with molecules provided by Takeda being tested. The compound works by attaching to an amino acid and attacking the protein synthesis mechanism internally and thus causing it to stop producing the proteins it needs to continue to function. And so this is really exciting. The team found that ML901 killed malarial parasites that were resistant to currently used antimalarials in both human blood cultures and in animal models. The molecule also works against all parts of the life cycle of the parasite, which means it can be used as a prophylactic as well as a treatment. It also shows potential for preventing infected people from transmitting the disease to others, which is critical to stop the spread of malaria, Tilly noted. And again, this is a potentially huge breakthrough, as malaria has become increasingly hard to treat with available drugs and will potentially move into new areas as climate change continues to shift where such diseases can gain a foothold. Because as these, the mosquitoes that cause, that don't cause it, the mosquitoes that spread malaria are potentially going to move into new areas as those areas become more um, hot and humid in the way that these um, mosquitoes enjoy living. And of course, there's also the uh, existential horror of uh, international trade and tourism. And so um, as much as it's amazing and wonderful to be able to do all of this stuff, it means that um, these sorts of uh, mosquitoes can potentially move into places where they've never been before and become invasive species and actually create a new pocket of uh, endemic disease. Now, we haven't had that happen um, at this point, but it is increasingly uh, possible. Um, we know that international um, trade especially has caused a lot of problems with invasive species and with the um, 
transmission of different animals into new habitats. Let's hope that that isn't going to happen anytime soon, though. At present, there are over 200 million new cases of malarial infections, which cause at least 600,000 deaths, uh, mainly in Africa and Southeast Asia at the moment. We believe this is just the beginning. We now have the possibility of finding drugs similar to ML901 that target a range of deadly infectious diseases, including multi-drug-resistant bacterial infections. The work opens up several new drug discovery avenues, she added. So again, this is potentially very big, but again, that word potentially is doing a lot of heavy lifting. Um, we talk about it all the time when I talk about medical uh, breakthroughs that, you know, and I'm going to say it a lot tonight because I think it's really important to remember that it's a long way from being something that actually goes into um, a person in order to either prevent or treat malaria. Um, and so there is, uh, I know, I think we've talked about it here on the show before, there is actually a um, valeria, malaria vaccine that people um, have been deploying, but it is not amazingly efficacious. Uh, it is efficacious enough to warrant giving it to uh, especially children, but it doesn't have a really high level of prevention. It has a high enough um, to prevent a lot of deaths, but we need tools that are even more um, effective because again, 600,000 deaths a year um, or 600 cases, 600,000 cases and um, no, 600,000 deaths. I was right. Sorry. <laughs> yes. So that is a lot of people who uh, shouldn't be dying. We should be able to find ways to uh, combat this disease and prevent people from dying. And, um, you know, this is definitely a refrain that we have seen in a lot of areas lately. Um where there are times when things look like they're really getting under control and then suddenly they're not. And we are in this constant arms race with uh, pathogens and with uh, nature as a whole. Um, basically, nature is always trying to kill you. <laughs> and so we have to find ways in order to prevent that. Um, and so this is a pretty exciting breakthrough. Okay. Let us move on now and talk about, uh, let's move on to a technological fix for a medical issue. And so Northwestern University researchers have developed the first pacemaker that is able to harmlessly dissolve in the body when no longer needed. And so the device is fully implantable, wireless, and now features four soft, flexible, wireless, and wearable sensors, uh, sensors and control units that are fixed to the upper body. And so publishing in the journal Science, lead researchers John A. Rogers, Igor R. Efimov, and Dr. Rishi Arona describe the new development of the device. The sensors continuously monitor, monitor physiological functions, including body temperature, oxygen levels, 
respiration, muscle tone, physical activity, and the heart's electrical activity. The system employs algorithms to analyze the various data inputs to detect abnormal cardiac rhythms and actually decides on its own when to pace the heart and at what rate. The information is also transmitted to a smartphone or tablet that the patient's doctor can use to monitor the situation. And so the system is useful um, primarily for those who need temporary pacing after cardiac surgery or who are waiting for the implantation of a permanent pacemaker. Now, the pacemaker uh, wirelessly draws energy from a node within the network, a small patch on the patient's chest. And that is one of the big uh, sort of breakthroughs because this allows the device to be fully wireless. The patient is also given a haptic feedback device to be worn on the body, which gives specific vibration patterns for uh, different system errors, such as low battery power, uh, incorrect device placement, or other malfunction issues. Now, the device is less invasive than current temp temporary pacemakers, which require invasive surgery when removed. In current settings, temporary pacemakers require a wire that is connected to an external generator that stimulates the heart, FMOV said. When the heart regains its ability to stimulate itself appropriately, the wire has to be pulled out. As you might imagine, this is a pretty dramatic procedure to pull out a wire connected to the heart. We decided to approach this problem from a different angle. We created a pacemaker that simply dissolves and does not need to be removed. This avoids the dangerous step of pulling out the wire. Current pacemakers are quite intelligent and respond well to the changing needs of the patient, Arona said but the wearable modules do everything traditional pacemakers do and more. A patient basically wears a little patch on their chest and gets real-time feedback to control the pacemaker. Not only is the pacemaker itself bioresorbable, it is controlled by a soft wearable patch that allows the pacemaker to respond to the usual activities of life without needing implantable sen sensors. And so one of the big things about that is that it frees patients from being tethered to a hospital bed. Rogers notes that for temporary cardiac pacing, the system untethers patients from monitoring and stimulation apparatuses that keep them confined to a hospital setting. Instead, patients could recover in the comfort of their own home while maintaining the peace of mind that comes with being remotely monitored by their physicians. And so Rogers and his lab have actually been working for a couple of decades on the development of soft, flexible, wireless, wearable devices and bioresorbable electronic technologies. And so this is kind of a, um, you know, end of the line, uh, really robust um, example of the kinds of things that this technology can do. The system, uh, again, includes the pacemaker itself, the cardiac module that provides the power to and controls the stimulation patterns for the pacemaker, as well as sensing electrical activity and sounds of the heart, a module that sits on the forehead and senses pulse oximetry, tissue oxygenation and vascular tone, a respiratory module that monitors coughing and breathing, 
and the multi-haptic feedback module to convey any issues with the system to the patient. We wanted to demonstrate that it's possible to deploy multiple different types of devices, each performing essential functions in a wirelessly coordinated manner across the body, Roger said. Some are sensing, some are delivering power, some are stimulating, some are providing control signals, but they all work together, trading information, making decisions based on algorithms, and reacting to changing conditions. The vision of multiple bioelectronic devices all talking to one another and performing different functions at different relevant anatomical locations is a frontier area that we will continue to pursue going into the future. And so again, this is really exciting. This is definitely a new frontier in medicine that we are coming into, wherein uh, wearable electronics are going to be sort of the new norm. And so there's a lot of work on um, 3D printing and in um, bio ink and all sorts of different kinds of technological breakthroughs that are going to be able to be better suited to creating the kinds of uh, technological devices that can really monitor people in real time, that can be connected to their smartphones or tablets, to a doctor's smartphone or tablets. Um, I do think that we will start to see a lot more wearable devices in the near future, um, especially for monitoring. And I mean, we're even seeing some of that already with um, disease, I'm sorry, for uh, devices to aid with uh, diabetes. So people are now, instead of having to uh, monitor their blood glucose every day by pricking their finger, they can have a wearable that is able to monitor their blood glucose um, and then sends the information to their smartphone, to an app that they can monitor and um and so I think that this is definitely one of those places where we are going to see a lot more uh, in the near future of wearable uh, medical technology. And um, so getting back to the pacemaker itself, uh, the team has continued to improve the system. And so the latest version includes biocompatible adhesive, which eliminates the need for sutures. And as the device dissolves, it now releases an anti-inflammatory drug to prevent foreign body reactions, which is very cool. Now, interestingly, one of the places they most see this device being used is actually in the pediatrics ward. Around 40,000 babies are born with a hole in the wall that separates the heart's upper chambers. Around 10,000 of those cases are life-threatening and require emergency surgery. And then after surgery, the babies require a temporary pacemaker. The good news is that this is a temporary condition, Efimov said. After about five to seven days, the heart regains its ability to stimulate itself and no longer needs a pacemaker. The procedure to remove the pacemaker has improved greatly over the years, so the rate of complications is low. But we could free these babies from the wires connecting to an external generator 
and free them from needing a second procedure. And I think that's pretty excellent. Uh, anything that helps in a situation with uh, pediatric care, um, that definitely sounds like it could be really, really exciting. Um, and it would definitely allow babies to get a better jump start on life. Sorry, that was a terrible, <laughs> that was terrible. Um, okay. So yeah, that is very, very exciting. All right. So we are going to take a break now, slightly earlier than usual, but I wanted to kind of, uh, do all of the cancer stories together. So let's take a moment, uh, do some show promos and some PSAs. And when we come back, we will spend the rest of the evening uh, talking about cancer. Now we're going to be talking about uh, potential breakthroughs in treatments. So uh, hopefully it's going to be a interesting and um, actually uh, hopeful <laughs> segment and not just thinking about how cancer is bad because cancer is very bad. Um, Part of uh, the thing I was think thinking about when I was uh, preparing these stories is the fact that um, cancer is actually uh, something that has been recently in my mind. Um, my dad was diagnosed with lung cancer uh, a couple years ago and has had uh, two surgeries since then. Luckily, uh, the cancer was caught early. Um, it's kind of a funny story. Uh, my dad's lung cancer was caught so early because my dad is a bit of a, I always say he's a bit of a wily coyote. And so he's always doing things and getting hurt in weird, wacky ways. And in this case, he actually uh, apparently forgot to put the parking brake on um, or put a chalk under one of the wheels of a tractor he was working on. And it actually rolled over his shoulder. And so he had to go and get x-rays and they did a CAT scan. And lo and behold, they found a spot on his lung while they were making sure that he didn't have any broken or shattered bones. Um, <laughs> like I said, uh, I have lots of stories about that sort of thing. But um, anyways, so luckily, um, it's really... It was a really lucky thing that he did that because the cancer was caught really early. It was very small and it's so far been really easy to be managed by, um, by small surgical procedures, but that is not always the case for lung cancer. And so, uh, when we come back, we will talk about a new way in which to hopefully try and detect some lung cancers before before they get too advanced. Uh, one of the more, one of the most common and deadly kinds of lung cancer actually doesn't usually uh, start to cause symptoms until it's fairly advanced. And at that point, it's too late for surgery. And uh, that is part of the reason why it's so deadly. All right. So um, like I said, we are going to take a break and then we will come back and we will talk about various kinds of cancer treatments. Okay, hang on for just a moment. 
Outbreaks of whooping cough, or pertussis, are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine, called Tdap, during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov slash pertussis slash pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres, and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical sources off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in a CD or tape player. Each week presenting shows which can at times be organized orderly and at other times perhaps be not as much so, yet never dull. Tune in Friday nights, 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP, Northampton 103.3 FM. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's Subculture Music Program, featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ, or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. The Forbes Library staff would like to remind you of the incredible resource that you have in your local public library. We have tens of thousands of books for you to check out, music CDs, movies, newspapers from around the region, the state, and the country. We have a wide variety of magazines and free computer and internet access every day. We also have our incredible reference services there to help you answer particularly vexing problems. All of this is free, locally available at 20 West Street in Northampton. So come by and check us out in person or at www.forbeslibrary.org or call 587-1011 for more information. In our polarizing political climate, it's become difficult to find shows willing to discuss, much less listen to, different points of view. Our job is to talk about things we hope you'll find interesting without all the shouting. To disagree without being disagreeable. To provide incisive factual commentary that cuts through the weekly spin cycle and aims to enlighten, not enrage, our listeners. So tune in for Civil Politics, Friday evenings at 7 here on Valley Free Radio or anytime at civilpoliticsradio.com. Okay, we are back, and once again, you are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. And so, as promised, we are going to be moving to talking about cancer. And again, like I said, this is going to be a, uh, hopefully, a good discussion of some new frontiers. And so, to begin with, that story on lung cancer. Researchers at the University of Missouri are working on a way to identify new minimally invasive biomarkers in order to create a blood test for early detection of non-small cell lung cancer, or NSCLC. 
one of two main types of lung cancer. Additionally, the test could also help identify potential drug resistance in patients with advanced disease. Yves Chabou, an assistant professor of biological sciences in the MU College of Arts and Sciences, notes that lung cancer continues to be one of the deadliest cancers worldwide. Sorry, that's University of Missouri. Uh, most cancer patients with NSCLC become symptomatic and come to the clinic when the disease has already progressed to the point where surgery is no longer an option and existing therapies are not effective, Shabu says. For instance, the probability that a patient with advanced NSCLC will be alive five years after diagnosis is only 7 to 10%. However, patients who are diagnosed early have more than a 90% chance of surviving the cancer through surgical approaches and existing therapies. The team's work relies on the detection of a molecular signature consisting of a combination of microRNAs that are circulating freely or are packed inside extracellular vesicles that are in the blood. Nadia Patterson, a graduate research assistant in Chabu's lab and co-author on the study, said this approach can be highly sensitive. She notes it could also be used in conjunction with current diagnostics, such as lung imaging, to improve the time frame and the specificity of detection. A large number of patients end up with either a false positive or a false negative result, Patterson said. The development and implementation of highly sensitive and robust approaches will positively transform outcomes for patients. Gangadhara Vadla, then a postdoc in the lab, was impressed by how well the method was able to distinguish between those who developed cancer and those who did not. It was striking to see how robustly the identified biomarkers distinguished cancer patients from cancer-free individuals, Vadla said. Also, different from tissue biopsies, which are considerably invasive, the blood-based approach relies on blood that can be drawn out easily from the patient's arm. Chabu explains how the screenings could identify patients who may become resistant to therapies as they will need a different approach due to cancer reoccurrence. By identifying predictive markers before patients begin treatment, we can help clinicians establish whether the patient is at risk of developing resistance to a particular therapy and choose alter alternative treatment options, Shabu said. Further, because these biomarkers are detecting resistance signals that can be turned off using existing drugs, Combining standard therapies with these biomarkers and guide drugs will improve patients' outcomes. Patients can derive durable survival benefits with these personalized precision treatment approaches. And so uh, the next step there is to further validate uh, these biomarkers in a larger pool of patients. And so, yeah, that is very, very exciting. Um, and so that's going to be kind of one of the big takeaways about cancer right now and throughout these um, stories is the fact that cancer is really hard to cure because it's really, really, really multidimensional. Um, and so, um, yeah, it's really one person's cancer is not another person's cancer. And that makes it frustratingly hard to treat because 
something that works for one person may not end up working for another person. Okay, so yeah. Um, I mean, we are making a big amount of progress. Lots of people now survive and are even, uh, even go into permanent remission who, you know, 10 or 20 years ago would have died outright. Um, and so I think that we've done a lot, but there's still a lot that we can do further. Okay. So let us start off, um, or move on to, I should say, a compound developed by a team of scientists from the University of Texas Health Science Center in San Antonio, along with researchers from University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center at Dallas and UT Dallas. This has been shown to kill a range of hard-to-treat cancer types in vitro as well as in animal models using a new kind of vulnerability. We identified a critical vulnerability in multiple cancers and have validated our findings in multiple cancer cell types and animal models, said study leader Ratna Vadlamudi, PhD, professor of obstetrics and gynecology at UT Health San Antonio and a member of the Mays Cancer Center. The range of cell lines and xenografts in which the compound has been shown to work is compelling and indicates that it is targeting a fundamental vulnerability in cancer cells. And so xenografts refer to human tumors that have been grown in mouse models in order to study their response to such uh, therapies more easily. And so... Um, Basically, one of the reasons that um, one of the ways in which researchers are able to study these cancers is that the whole point of cancer is that it just keeps growing and growing and growing. And so a lot of cell lines are available to researchers. Um, of course, there is the uh, incredibly controversial uh, example of this, which is the um, immortal cells of Henrietta Lacks. Um, if you don't know about that, um, I don't know where you've been in the last five years or so, especially. Um, and so these were ovarian cancer cells that were harvested from this woman, um, African-American woman, and she had no idea. Her family had no idea. And then they were used for all sorts of medical research, all sorts of medical breakthroughs that have made lots of money for lots of people. And she was basically forgotten until somebody um, finally uncovered her story. And uh, her family has continued to fight um, for uh, monetary compensation, which I think that they are absolutely entitled to. Um, I can't remember exactly. I would assume that it did not go their way just because of the way that things work, um, especially here in America. Oh, let's not talk about court systems today um, and about how uh, people with uh, less power are basically uh, completely powerless within the court system. Anywho, we're not going to talk about that. We are going to go back to talking about this particular study. Uh, and so the researchers were first targeting breast and ovarian cancer. They were working on developing small molecule inhibitors for therapy-resistant cancers. 
In 2017, Fadlamudi and his colleagues discovered a compound called ERX11 that targets estrogen receptors, or ER, a protein implicated in most breast cancers. Looking at chemical analogs to ERX11, the team then identified a compound called ERX41, which not only killed ER-positive cancers in vitro, but also worked against triple-negative breast cancers, TNBCs, including more than 20 separate distinct cell lines of TNBC. These cancers lack receptors for estrogen, progesterone, and human epidermal growth factor, too thus the triple negative. And these cancers have few therapeutic treatments. The researchers then moved from the Petri dish to mouse models and found that ERX41 worked against a large number of human tumor growths from cell lines and mouse models. It also worked against patient-derived xenografts, causing shrinkage without harming normal breast tissue or having any toxic effects on the mice. The safety profile and high therapeutic index of this compound is particularly notable and bodes well for clinical translation, Dr. Vladlamudi said. They then tested the compound against other forms of cancer and found that it worked against other cancers with elevated endoplasmic reticulum stress, including pancreatic glioblastoma and ovarian cancers. The endoplasmic reticulum is involved in the manufacture of proteins, and the ERX41 compound binds to lysomal acid lipase A, or LIPA, which then blocks protein folding needed for the tumor cell to survive and thus causing it to die. So this is a pretty promising avenue of research and treatment for those kinds of cancer. So that is pretty exciting. Again, this is all going to be research that's still in the lab, in mouse models. And so obviously there's a lot of places to go, but it's all very exciting and um, really shows that in the next 10 or 15 years, we might have some really great um, some really great uh, tools in our toolbox to combat cancer. So... Uh, in Switzerland and the Netherlands, a, multi- a multiply affiliated team has reported that a vaccine targeting a certain protein is effective in treating multiple types of cancers in several kinds of animals. Writing in Nature Communications, they describe the protein, which is only found in cancer tumors, and the vaccine they developed to target this protein. In 2016, 20- 2006, the researchers found that a protein called vimentin is expressed only by tumor cells and is found only in the blood that feeds cancerous tumors. They found that the protein assisted in the creation of new blood vessels that are necessary for tumor growth, as well as playing a role in turning off immune response. They then developed a vaccine that would prevent the production of vimentin inside tumors. The vaccine, called Griffioen, was then tested on a variety of animals with skin, brain, and colorectal cancer with varying degrees of success. They then tested it on dogs that had developed bladder cancer. The researchers treated 
35 of the dogs with their vaccine. Half of the animals survived the 400-day test period, with two dogs going into full remission. They also treated a pet of one of the researchers with bone cancer that had a pretty uh, dire prognosis. And in this case, the tumors actually disappeared and the dog returned to normal health. Ugh, I really wish that I could have gotten uh, our dog Wally into this um, trial. Uh, my partner's dog Wally um, has been uh, being treated with chemotherapy. He, he finished his chemotherapy run uh, for lymphoma, which is not a... Uh, cancer that is currently curable in uh, dogs. You can only treat it, and he has the more aggressive version. And yeah, I mean, it's not just humans who uh, have to deal with this. And um, yeah, that's it's pretty. I mean, he's doing he's doing as well as he possibly can be. Um, but it is just so upsetting. Cancer is so terrible, and. Um, you know, I definitely feel like I need these things to move a little bit faster in some respects because uh, my family history, I am almost certain at some point to develop some kind of cancer. Um, so yeah, uh, I still remember the time that my mom casually dropped the sentence the second time your grandmother had cancer <laughs> when I was an adult. And I was like, what? I don't remember you ever mentioning a second bout of cancer. <laughs> um, so yeah. Oh, fun times. Not at all. Anyways, the researchers believe that targeting vimentin is definitely something that can help shrink or destroy tumors. Of course, more testing is required before moving to human trials, but once again, this is potentially another tool in our toolbox of cancer-fighting treatments. Um, so yeah, next we have a new treatment for a woman's advanced pancreatic cancer. The tumors have shrunk substantially and she has remained in stable health a year post-treatment. Now, this is exciting because pancreatic cancer is one of the most deadly forms of cancer. The treatment involves immunotherapy, helping the body's own immune system actually fight the cancer. Now, this is usually done by genetically altering T-cells to carry new receptors on their surface, which allow them to recognize a specific protein or antigen found in certain cancer cells. Now, immunotherapy has actually been successful in improving many people's survival odds against blood cancers, such as leukemia, but have uh, proven less effective against solid tumors. And that's really where a lot of this research is right now, is into solid tumors, because those are uh, really the harder kinds of cancer to treat at this point. And so researchers at the Providence Cancer Institute believe that they have solved this issue, at least for some patients, which is very important, unfortunately. Um, this is not a universal panacea for the cancer. They found in their research that some T-cells can naturally detect CRAS-G12D, a mutant version of an antigen found in some solid tumors. They then hypothesized that the T-cells of people with the right genetics could be engineered to target tumors that contain this mutant version of CRAS, 
or KRAS. The patient, Kathy Wilkes, turned out to have a cancer that fit the bill, and her genetic makeup was also compatible. And so last June, she received a single infusion of her own T-cells. These cells had been engineered to carry two receptors important for recognizing the mutant version of CRAS. Six months later, her tumor was shown to have shrunk by 72%, with the altered T-cells still accounting for 2% of circulating peripheral T-cells in her system. And a recent check-in didn't find any signs of her condition worsening. It's really exciting. It's the first time this sort of treatment has worked in a very difficult-to-treat cancer type, Josh Veach of the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center, who is not affiliated with the research, told the AP. However, again, this particular story comes with a lot of caveats. Another patient who tried the therapy did not show any therapeutic benefit. Now, Wilkes had already tried chemotherapy, radiation, and surgery, and reportedly sought out the researchers herself as a last form of hope. And so it's great that it worked for her, and hopefully she will continue to be in mostly remission. Um, but again, we have to be very careful about being, uh, you know, very excited about this kind of cancer treatment because it looks like it's going to be only for a very narrow band of uh, patients who have very specific parameters around their own genetics and the genetics of their cancer. And so, yes. Uh, so one of the reasons that, you know, we have to approach it in all these different directions is because of that fact that uh, something that works for one person may do little for another. And so a team led by Andrew Sorkis, professor in bioengineering and co-director of the Center for Targeted Therapeutics and Translational Nanomedicine, or CT3N, at the University of Pennsylvania, have published a new study in Science Advances that describe work to turn patients' T-cells that recognize a tumor but don't have the ability to turn that into fighting the tumor into T-cells that can mount an actual fight against the tumor. And so because only a fraction of cancers have known markers that can be targeted by other therapies, many people do not respond to those types of treatments and thus need another path. And so Sorkis came up with what he described as a quote-unquote crazy idea to use the patient's own T-cells to do the work instead. Burson Alton, a former postdoctoral researcher in Sorkis's lab, began the work and it was completed by Fabiana Zapala, a former graduate student in Penn Bioengineering. As noted, cancer patients will indeed generate an antibody response to their own tumors. The problem has been that while these anti-tumor antibodies are quite good at their ability to only identify cancer cells and ignore other healthy cells, they are not potent enough to rally the immune system to mount a effective defense against the cancer. So Sorkis's team converted these antibodies into bispecific antibodies, thus making them better able to mount an actual defense. 
T-cell redirecting bispecific antibodies are a new form of therapy that create a bridge between tumor cells and T-cells, which has been found to be as much as a thousand times more potent than antibodies alone. By combining the two, researchers are able to create a powerful immune response against the tumors. In order to make this work, the lab had to develop an entirely new technology, which allowed them to precisely label antibodies with T-cell targeting domains to create a batch of T-cells that were all the same cancer-fighting type. And so this was the first time a team was able to convert native antibodies into bispecific antibodies. Much is yet to be done before this could be considered a practical clinical approach, said Sorkis, but I hope at the very least this work stimulates new ideas in the way we think about personalized medicine, which is, of course, another one of those big new frontiers. And so uh, we hear a lot about um, personalized medicine and about how um, you know, your genetics are very important to the way in which you will respond to certain cancer therapies and uh, or to certain therapies for many diseases, not just cancer, in fact. Um, and so I was having a conversation with some people the other day about uh, genetic testing. And, um, you know, uh, if you are a regular listener, you know that my position on genetic testing is that I am currently against it um, for a variety of reasons, uh, not the least of because I'm just stubborn at this point. Um, but I still don't like the idea of uh, giving my genetic uh, makeup freely to a company that could then uh, either sell it on to a third party or be hacked by um a third party, and then my genetic code could be out there for people to use. And while that doesn't sound like the hugest deal, um, it's just one of those things that I just feel kind of icky about at the moment. Um, I would love to be able to do a genetic test and know that my privacy would be uh, protected. But as we know these days, privacy is almost never protected anywhere. Uh, with anything, especially anything that lives in a computer. Also, um, I still think that the uh, the thing that I would really want to know about is the ancestry part, and I don't think that the ancestry uh, databases are yet robust enough. They're probably robust enough for me, I mean, because I'm very white, um, and so I'm not I, I would not be surprised if it would do a good job with my genetic makeup, but I just still feel in principle that I'm a, I'm a gin it. <laughs> Anywho, uh, let's get back to cancer. Um, that, that sounded bad, but you know what I mean. <laughs> okay. And so, um, the next steps, um, there, I'm sorry, I've, I uh, got very much sidetracked. The next steps on for Sorkis's work are to work to separate anti-tumor antibodies from other antibodies in patients' blood serum in order to prevent the T-cells from being repurposed for other tasks in the body and to examine any possible side effects or unintended consequences of the treatment, though they haven't seen any yet. Okay, so... 
Next, scientists at the City of Hope National Medical Center in California have also been experimenting with a cancer treatment. This one relies on an engineered virus, CF33HNIS, aka Vaccinia. The virus has been engineered to selectively kill cancer cells and also to, once again, amplify the body's immune response to cancer cells. While work on using viruses against cancer is not a new idea, it's not had great success, and so recently researchers have taken a different approach. They have created a virus that not only attacks cancer cells, but also makes those cells easier to detect by the immune system, thus making it another kind of immunotherapy treatment. In the lab, Vaccinia has been able to reduce the size of colon, lung, breast, ovarian, and pancreatic cancer tumors. Now is the time to further enhance the power of immunotherapy, and we believe CF33HNIS has the potential to improve outcomes for our patients in their battle with cancer, said lead study investigator Dayang Li, an assistant professor of City of Hope's Department of Medical Oncology and Therapeutics Research in a statement. A phase one trial of 100 cancer patients with metastatic or advanced solid tumors and a history of multiple treatments is beginning. Subjects will either receive vaccinia alone or in combination with prembrolizumab, an immunotherapy drug. Phase one trials are meant not to test the efficacy of the drug per se, but rather to test the safety and optimal dose of the experimental drug. However, researchers will track the patients and see whether their cancer progress and their survival over the next several years, which will be the basis of data for whether or not the drug continues with further phases of human testing. The trial is expected to be completed early in 2025. Um, so again, none of these therapies is going to hit hospitals anytime soon. They continue, though, to move us toward a time when cancers can be treated and survival rates can be potentially much higher than today. Now, again, even today, survival rates have been increasing for many kinds of cancer. Nature tries really hard to kill us a lot of the time, but this is an area where we have indeed made some really good progress. We may not be any closer to living past 100, the 100-year mark, but at least we can try and work towards many more people being able to reach that milestone. Um, oh, sorry. Uh, I almost forgot, but I didn't. I have not forgotten about the history of the vibrator that I talked about last week, um, but it turns out to be like way more interesting and fascinating and like rabbit holy than I thought it was going to be. And so it will either turn into a long form essay, uh, which I will then uh, direct you to on the website, or it might turn into a whole episode at some point uh, in the nearish future. Um, but again, the more I dig, the more I find out that I want to talk about. And so I definitely want to give it proper treatment. Okay, that is all the time we have for tonight. 
Um, I hope that you feel a little more hopeful about uh, the world of treating various diseases. And I will hopefully uh, be back here for you next week with a new show. Good night. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.